Hello all and welcome to the Gestalt IT Rundown, your weekly look at the IT news of the week, brought to you by Gestalt IT. I'm your host, Rich Straffolino, editor with uh, the aforementioned Gestalt IT, and joining me from across this great land of ours, he's the man, the plan, the canal, ladies and gentlemen, Tom Hollingsworth. Tom, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me, Rich. I'm going to be enjoying a nice chocolate chip cookie later because it is National Chocolate Chip Day. Wow. Uh, you could also have some ice cream. Maybe, what else do you do chocolate chips with? I don't know. I mean, anything with them is better. Um, and maybe mm-hmm. Cisco could use some chocolate chips because they could certainly use a better day. Security researchers at Red Balloon found two major security exploits for Cisco's 1001X router. The first is uh, a vulnerability for their the iOS, the operating system that runs on it, that would allow someone to remotely gain root access. So already really bad. Uh, from their researchers, we were able to get uh, around Cisco's trust anchor via an FPGA exploit. If you're not familiar with that, that's basically their version of Secure Enclave, or you know, it's kind of their their uh, single point of uh, of security validation, I guess. And no one can access the code to it. It's supposed to be very secure and totally locked down. Uh, this would allow actors to make changes to the device, but still have it report back as working properly when everyone went to go check on it really really bad (laughs) Uh, cisco has announced a patch for the ios exploit but it will be months before it's released and require an on-premises reprogramming they actually said on-premise we're going to allow them that Uh, aka it can't be just pushed remotely you have to actually physically go to the device that's affected and presumably this would affect more than just this one specific router considering ios runs on any number of devices um, Cisco and Red Balloon are disputing the nature of the trust anchor exploit, but are we seeing cracks and kind of putting all our security eggs in a trusted enclave basket, Tom? Well, I think what happened here is that Cisco really does believe that this trust anchor thing is going to work. The problem is, is that uh, Red Balloon spent $80,000 of their own money. These routers retail for ten grand each. Um, and they just started playing around with them. And what they would do is they would uh, boot the router in ROMMON mode, which is the secure, like, you know, um, no operating system found mode. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, uh, and the trust anchor does exactly what it's supposed to at that point. It waits about 300 seconds and then it shuts the router off because it thinks it's being exploited. So what they did is they just started disabling pins on the FPGAs until they found the one that controlled the call home feature to shut the router down. And then they just said to disable it. So that's why this has become a huge deal is because now with a with FPGAs being field programmable, you can rewrite anything you want in there and it's not going to be able to call home and shut the router down. So this is a big deal because it's kind of proving the fact that maybe FPGAs are by design not the best thing to use for trusted enclave type things. Yeah, you can certainly see there's a certain convenience factor to that when it comes to manufacturing and, and you know, kind of putting them into the hardware. But yeah, um, having people fool around with it, I suppose, I mean, not that Cisco has a wide enough footprint that I guess I hope they're not assuming this, but maybe that the, yeah, the cost of entry would limit the amount of people that could fool around with this. But yeah, now that this is out there, um, pretty, pretty nasty stuff. And, and again, the fact that this, this isn't something that you know, they can just flick a switch and release a patch and everything is patched all together. Um, you know, if you're dealing with any kind of remote deployments, I mean, this specific router, probably you're not going to have too many of those, right? These are, you know, more camp, right, campus routers or, or what is the what is the focus of? These are more designed to be service provider backbone routers, which okay, I think so- is one of the things that that causes a little bit of pause here, because if you can if you can backdoor that FPGA, you can see pretty much everything that's flying across that router. That's a problem because that's persistence. That's not just not a break in. That's a stay in. 
Yeah, at least I mean, but, but my point is that at least the patch for this specific router, theoretically, you have the staff and you have the access to be able to do that relatively easily. Although, again, not being able to do it remotely or push it through the air is is kind of a pain. Um, so we will we will see what the fallout from this is and uh, you know how long it actually takes them to get this uh, patch out there. Yeah. All right. Next up in other terrifying security news. Hey, it's another year, another fundamental security flaw for Intel chips. This time, the security researchers that brought you Spectre and Meltdown are back with Zombie Load, a side channel attack made up of four separate design flaws. The exploit effectively allows application data to bleed across boundaries when trying to access a buffer on the CPU. Researchers found a proof of concept allowing for real-time viewing of websites visited uh, you know, just by, just by using this exploit. Uh, so not just theoretical, uh, actually at least being used in a proof of concept. The exploit can be triggered in uh, VMs and uh, also, you know, for cloud instances and affects all Intel systems going back to 2011. So effectively, you know, any kind of modern core architecture is going to be impacted by this. Intel has started to roll out patches uh, across a wide swath of, of different architectures going back um, at least to Haswell from what I saw. With consumer devices slowed down 3% and data center workloads looking at closer to a 9% performance drop. Tom... Again, another, you know, is this just x86 has this long history of, you know, for being as long in the tooth as it is, even though it's been updated, refreshed endless times by Intel. Is this just the future that Intel has now with with x86 that the the, the not the code base, but the architectural history is so long that and been extended upon so long that these kind of flaws are inevitable? Yeah, this is well, I mean, when you look at how they originally got Spectre Meltdown to work. It was branch prediction um, exploiting, essentially. Mm -hmm. and, and this just builds on that. And, and coming from the same team, it's not surprising. Uh, they found a weakness in the architecture, and they're going to exploit it for everything that it's worth. And in a way, I kind of feel like that's a good thing because it does expose some fundamental flaws, but it also forces us to rethink this all-out speed race um, you know, it used to be that Moore's law was being held in check because we were seeing these advances. And then when it became an issue with um, Intel wanting Moore's law to be true every year, they started doing more and more of these little tricky things to make the chips go faster. And now they're coming, the Piper is coming back to collect his uh, payment, as it were, just because this is a really bad problem in the name of speed. Yeah, and to put it into context, the researchers said, you know, kind of in the how apocalyptically bad is this? They said, I think it's worse than Spectre, but not quite as bad as Meltdown and kind of falling also within the same um, the same spectrum of ease of being able to exploit it. You know, this isn't mm -hmm. this isn't none of these none of these flaws, these these fundamental flaws from Intel are the easiest to exploit. Like a phishing attack is always going to be, you know, or any kind of social engineering is always going to be like orders of magnitude easier. However, for virtually impenetrable systems, this may be, you know, a, a, a viable for, you know, more sophisticated actors, that kind of stuff. Um, from a enterprise perspective, again, the same thing with Meltdown that we saw. This is something that, you know, uh, VM isolation or, uh, you know, using a cloud provider doesn't really provide you any protection for. I mean, is that... Is that going to be any kind of uh, influence when it comes to, you know, public cloud providers making long-term investments in hardware? Yeah, it's going to make them go back to Intel and say, fix this or we're dumping you. <laughs> uh, I mean, that's that's really all that there is. Because right now your options are patch it and lose performance or wait until the next thing 
comes along the pipe that causes this to to become an even bigger problem. So I'm sure that, you know, when you're an Amazon or a Microsoft, you're looking at your partner Intel and going, all right, seriously, guys, fix this now. Yeah. And the other interesting thing now, we heard this before, I think, with Meltdown that, you know, uh, AMD and ARM are not affected. I mean, ARM wouldn't be affected. This seems to be very x86 specific. I'm interested to see if there, you know, we see a we see an AMD variant of that down the road. And we kind of we kind of saw that with Meltdown initially, where it was originally just an Intel thing. And then, no, it turns out everything's broken forever. Uh, so mm-hmm. we will we will see how that plays out. And then finally, in our, our trio of just horrible security news this week Uh, microsoft released a patch for remote desktop services for windows xp windows 7 windows server 2003 and 2008 to protect against a vulnerability that affects devices pre-authentication with no interaction needed Um, if you're hearing those names of different versions of windows you may realize that several of them are no longer supported and should be getting patches that's how bad this exploit was microsoft uh, did it, uh, you know, kind of out of band, out of support. Uh, very interesting there. The de- exploit is wormable, and uh, the researchers compared it to the WannaCry ransomware and able to spread quickly across devices, so it kind of explains why Microsoft is kind of anxious to patch this, especially on older systems that probably don't have great security anyway. Windows 8 and Windows 10 are not vulnerable, so that's good, and with now market share kind of tipping into the Windows 10, uh, you know, in, into the majority of Windows 10 devices being out there, that's at least a good thing. And there have been no active uses of the exploit uh, seen in the wild. But Microsoft warned it's only a matter of time to reverse engineer the patches uh, before that becomes a very real possibility. Tom, will Microsoft have to update Windows XP for the rest of time? And does this really justify the kind of the Windows uh, the Windows 10 continuous deployment or continuous update kind of strategy? I mean, I kind of like the fact that Microsoft is using this as an example to tell people to get off of a version of Windows that was released in 2002. (laughs) Uh, For those of you that are paying attention at home, if you were born that year, you're going to graduate from high school next year. And they're still wanting people to patch this. That's crazy talk. I mean, the architecture is completely different inside of Windows. That's why 8 and 10 aren't affected by this. You need to get off of those versions of Windows. And Microsoft is basically doing their due diligence so that the ATMs of the world don't get, um, you know, blasted by this. And I was actually working on a support desk when the SQL slammer worm came out. So I know how bad it is when you have a rapidly spreading exploit with no patch for it. And uh, let me tell you, that was not a fun night on the support desk. (laughs) But more importantly, you have to examine your you know your desktop strategy and you have to understand that microsoft is not going to take a one off for your 17 year old operating system anymore this you need to wisen up and you need to be ready to move when something like this comes out next time i mean but with millions of xp machines still out there still being used like you said um you know kind of for the back ends of atms point of sale machines other things where people aren't even thinking about what operating system it's being run or in mom and pop shops, that kind of stuff. Is Microsoft in a, just a no-win situation in the long run here? Because at some point, you're absolutely right. A, a worm like this is going to come out and they're going to go, you know what, we've updated Windows XP. The guy, the, the guy that we have that just sits in a cubicle and waits for horrible security exploits that knows the code base, we, you know, we let him go or he retired or whatever. At some point, they're going to say, we're not releasing a patch for XP. And then Microsoft gets all this bad publicity that Microsoft abandons users, worm spreads, you know, further worldwide. Microsoft didn't do anything to stop it. And again, I, you know, I know a lot of people aren't crazy about the, you know, the kind of the Windows 10 forced march of updates. They've kind of eased off that a little bit. 
But I feel like that's the only way going forward with with more devices being interconnected with more of these exploits only going to be coming out every you know every year every month every week that's the only way forward for the company right yeah that's pretty much it microsoft really can't win here either they dedicate their resources to making things safe and modernized or they keep around the tiger team of xp security exploit folks <laughs> and and those guys are going to be drawing a pension until they're 90 at the rate they're going yeah um in non-Windows news, in the, the most non-Windows-ness of news, Tom, you know what 2019 is supposed to be the year of, right? Not uh, let, me check my, let me check my calendar. Is it, is it Linux on the desktop? It may be, because at Google I.O., the company announced that all Chromebooks released in 2019, ARM or Intel-based, will be Linux-ready out of the box. Users can now launch a uh, Debian 9.0 Linux container in terminal with options to use either Fedora or uh, Ubuntu with a, just a few shell commands to kind of switch things over. Uh, Canary builds now uh, also allow for easy file sharing between Chrome OS and Debian, uh, and it should be coming to the general release relatively soon. Chrome OS already Linux-based, certainly, but there's you know it's very much obscured behind basically just being a big Chrome window that you can use. Uh, but 2019, the year of Linuxier Linux on the desktop, Tom, what do we think? I think this is a bunch of hooey, to be honest with you. <laughs> and, and here's the reason why. People who use a Chromebook don't care about Linux or Windows or Mac. They care about Google. They want to be able to use their Google apps. They want to be able to do Google searches. I mean, the biggest deployments of Chromebooks that I've seen are schools. Um, and the secondary ones are road warriors who just don't like iPads. Um, but here's the biggest thing. I mean, if what we're calling Linux on the desktop now is being able to run a bash shell inside of a terminal window, then by all accounts, Windows 10 will be able to do that at the next update. So don't stick feathers up your butt and call yourself a chicken. <laughs> this is not Linux. This is Linux-like capability inside of something that is still very Chrome OS. And I'll tell you that Chrome OS under the hood is very much Linux. But that's the issue that we run into is that Linux on the desktop is not what we, you and I would consider Linux. It's a pretty shell in front of it. So, Does, okay, big deal. You know, as, as someone who in the mid aughts went through my Linux hippie, you know, college phase and was like, I should just install a send every machine. This, the, no one will ever have any complaints about this. Um, the, the idea now that Linux has mass uh, uh, market penetration across a number of OSs in terminal as the way to go forward is this very bizarre world to live in. I do think that some of this announcement was literally just to get the attention of tech press that, you know, that, that still, you know, that are the, the Linux diehards that just to get this story to write up. I, I do think it's really cool. I mean, again, Chrome OS from its, it is Linux based from its very beginning, you know, the CR 48 that Google put out had like a little developer switch you could flip and then you could install, mm -hmm. you know, whatever you wanted on it. And, you know, so there's, there's always been this weird, uh, it, not tension. I mean, certainly, but you know, been ways to kind of backdoor into getting a full Linux install. But I do have to say, if you are a, you know, a command line dork, if you, you know, there are some instances where a Chromebook is very tempting to me, but you know, there are those instances you know, okay, yeah, you can run Android apps and that fills in some of the gap that you can't get between web apps and, and more traditional desktop experience, maybe by opening it up to some interesting command line utilities. I think, you know, that, that has some interesting possibilities. 
All right, uh, other interesting possibilities at the Samsung Foundry Forum event, which is kind of hard to say. Samsung announced that using gate all-around transistor designs, the company will begin test of, uh, test runs of three nanometer chips in 2020 with mass production expected in 2021. They expect to shrink, uh, the shrink will speed performance by 35% and reduce power by 50%. This uses flat nanosheet transistor channels with a 3D gate wrapped all around it instead of just being like a sheet on top as more traditional or, or transistors have been uh, done kind of to date. Uh, the tech opens the door for the potential of transistors below one nanometer. Considering that a silicon atom has a diameter of 0.2 nanometers, Tom, and I look that up, are we surprised that, this, uh, that these processes have gotten this small for chips? Now, this is this is the march uh, ever downward. Let's make the smallest transistor that we can find and pack as many of them on a, a regular sized SOC as we can, because that's that's the thing. The SOCs don't get any smaller. They just pack more and more transistors on there. I mean, when you look at the size of your standard mobile device, mm-hmm. aside from the iPhone SE, they haven't been getting smaller. What we've been doing is we've been adding processor power to them, which negates the power savings and and speed performance and things like that. So I'm not I'm not overly excited about this because I mean we we've known this for a long time. Now the technology behind it is really amazing when you know that they have to do things like shock isolate the buildings <laughs> that these are being made in because literally traffic on the road outside the building can cause errors in the wafer manufacturing process. I looked that up too. And that's at 10 nanometers, and we're already three times smaller than that. It is, so, it is interesting, though, that there will be – I mean, obviously, with any new investment in any new chip process, that's a huge upfront investment for the fab that they put mm-hmm. that in. That's why so many companies go fabless is because they don't have tens of billions of dollars to put down every three years to build a new uh, fab in Germany or Hong Kong or whatever. Um so, but they they did say on a on a cost basis, even after taking out the initial capital investment, these will be more expensive to produce because this is a very uh, obviously to get down to three nanometers, it's a very precise uh, technology. I do wonder if that will impact yields, especially because the first round of these chips is supposed to be going into smartphones, uh, wearables, that kind of stuff. Things that have that are produced in you know the tens of millions, hundreds of millions uh, kind mm-hmm. of volume. Obviously, Samsung is no stranger to this. They kind of spun out their foundry business in their weird Samsung portfolio of businesses that are all owned by Samsung, but all compete viciously with each other at the same time. So I have to imagine if they're comfortable announcing this, they have to be reasonably assured that, you know, they can make everything work, work at scale and and have the customers to use this with. But, you know, they, they were predicting that they're at least a year ahead of TSMC and at least two, three years ahead of Intel. Intel can't even deliver on 10 nanometer I think they have one chip out uh, that can do that right now. Nothing on the server side. Um, and we should be seeing, by the way, these. Th- so like the three nanometer launch is going to be consumer focused for 2021. And I think 2022, 2023 going to be getting to more uh, data center IoT uh, use cases uh, to see that as well. But interesting stuff nonetheless. And Tom, we're going to finish out with a little acquisition news. Have you heard of this company called uh, VMware? Uh, name rings a bell. I, I think they do something with uh, with software, right? Yeah, it's a video motion where they do uh, some uh, graphic smoothing uh, technology. Uh, but VMware announced the acquisition of Bitnami, the application packaging platform. 
According to Bitnami CEO Daniel Lopez, the company was doing a fundra- was doing a fundraising round and realized that building an enterprise sales force was kind of hard, and the acquisition kind of grew out of there uh, initially just from a funding round. Uh, VMware is committing to maintaining Bitnami's existing cloud partner or cloud provider relationships and plans to use them to deliver validated solutions to customers in multiple clouds, formats, and marketplaces. That's a quote. Bitnami is a bit of a developer darling. Good move by VMware here, Tom. Yeah, I think this is because it allows them to augment their cloud offerings because, you know, we've the, the two biggest announcements that we've seen from VMware recently were VMware on AWS and VMware on Azure. And everyone's like, well, then why would I not just run natively on those two platforms and cut VMware out of the middle and lower my costs? Well, now with Bitnami, what they can say is, well, we have application packaging and that will help you out quite a bit. So this is a value add to keep their cloud offering relevant whether you're running on vmware's hybrid hybrid cloud solutions or if you're running vmware on a public cloud Mm -hmm. um you know this this kind of makes it sticky and the idea is is that you you build up the services and you cause the the developers to want to continue to use things like vmware bitnami or whatever they end up calling it and now they're not going to want to go native AWS because they're going to miss out on some of their tool sets yeah i do think this is an interesting move by vmware to kind of go from you know, courting the companies that developers work for to getting into, uh, you know, a more uh, developer direct relationship, much the way that the public cloud, you know, kind of to your point, Tom, much the way the public cloud providers do that in a lot of ways, you know, instead of going, oh, I'll I'll describe this S3 bucket and I'll spin up, uh, you know, my EC2 instance or what, you know, whatever. Instead, now I can just, well, the only reason I was doing that was so I could run WordPress, right? Or I could run Drupal or Mm -hmm. I could run this one app. And that's why I need this cloud server. Instead of that, now you have this direct relationship with VMware via Bitnami to spin all that up. And yeah, the cloud stuff handles it in the background and I don't have to worry about it. It it does maybe sing, signal a more direct developer slash almost, not a consumer level, but away from more of an infrastructure idea of the company, or at least diversifying into that area, right? Yeah, I think that's probably what it's gonna end up looking like when this all settles. Let me let me just put it this way. I can spin up a Bitnami WordPress install and get that working in a couple of minutes. So I do think that has some interesting implications for diversifying the type of people that could be considered VMware customers, which I think is is good for the long term viability of the company. Again, Bitnami kind of being a uh, you know, I, I called it a developer darling, but you know, it, it's the it's the company you go to when you know you say, oh, I just you know I just need this spun up in two minutes. I don't care about any of the background stuff. Is there any chance that any like developer goodwill is you know VMware kind of seeing as the the 800 pound gorilla coming in and buying them up, or will that depend on how they handle them post acquisition? It's going to depend entirely on how this handles post acquisition. Um, VMware has done some really good things recently with some of their acquisitions, mm-hmm. um, so I feel like if they kind of treat this with kid gloves, basically look at the way Microsoft treated GitHub. Okay. You do that. You're going you're gonna to have developers eating out of your hand. Very, very interesting. Um, and Tom, thank you for feeding us from the hand of your IT knowledge. Uh, always appreciated. Where can people find more of your good stuff if they are so inclined? Man, I am all over the internet at this point. Um, the quickest ways to find me, head over to my Twitter handle, Networking Nerd. That's uh, real-time streaming snarkiness. Um, I write at networkingnerd.net. I also write at gestaltit.com, where Rich edits all of my loveliness and makes it sound coherent. Well, we try. 
Uh, you can also <laughs> find some of my stuff at gestaltit.com as well. You can also check out the on-premise IT Roundtable podcast. We just had a new episode all about data protection policy, so you can check that out. Uh, it's a really was a really interesting conversation that we recorded at Tech Field Day Extra at uh, Dell Technologies World or Dell Tech World if uh, you're into the whole brevity thing. And uh, so check that out as well in your podcatcher of choice. You can also find me on Twitter at Mr. Anthropology. That's MR Anthropology. But that will just about do it for the Gestalt IT Rundown for this week. We'll be back next Wednesday, 1230 p.m. Eastern Time, running down the IT News of the Week. For myself, for Tom Hollingsworth, from everyone here at Gestalt IT, here's wishing you and yours to have a super sparkly day. And there's a shield.